Podcastle 134 for December 7th, 2010. Corinthians by Sam Schreiber. Rated R for Sex and Language. Bless me, Podcastle listeners, for I have sinned. It's been a long time since my last confession. I'm your host and co-editor, Dave Thompson, and... Actually, I'm a Quaker, so I guess you could say I've never had a last confession. Oh boy, where to begin? I've been a believer for as long as I can remember. That said, I am a strange bird when it comes to Christianity. Like I said, I'm a Quaker, and I'm especially strange when it comes to Christianity and the arts. You see, I love Kevin Smith's dogma like no other, but dear God, please do not make me watch The Omega Code or Left Behind. Actually, I'd like to avoid pretty much anything with Kirk Cameron at this point. I know some people believe we're actually living in hell right now, and I'd say sitting in a darkened movie theater with those movies is a pretty strong supporting argument. I love God and or spirituality in my fiction. We're talking fantasy here, and it's pretty hard to have a fantasy literature discussion without mentioning C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and I admit I'm very fond of those books. I also love reading Madeline Lingle, Gene Wolfe, or even Stephen Lawhead. So I do believe that some Christian authors do have awesome, interesting, and cool stories to tell, and can tell them pretty well. But yikes, people. The idea of Christian publishing houses churning out books by Frank Peretti, Tim LaHaye, and Jerry B. Jenkins? Fiction about how those lowly sinners all get theirs is, in my opinion, the most horrific kind of wish fulfillment. That scares the crap out of me, and I'm not talking about in a fun pseudopod kind of way. It makes me want to get with Anne Rice and ditch the church. Yeah, I just said get with Anne Rice as an alternative to something terrifying. I know. Mostly, I guess what pisses me off about Christian publishing houses or Christian film companies or Christian music labels is this. They don't really seem like they're allowed to explore their faith. They seem constricted by some kind of weird denominational guideline. When I've talked to people who like Left Behind to Frank Peretti or a Kirk Cameron movie, God help us, I hear in response, I know it's not a great movie or book, but it's got a really good message. Hey look, if I want a good message, I'll check my email or the Escape Artist forums. So I was incredibly happy to see Sam Schreiber's odd, quirky little story Corinthians pop up in our inbox not too long ago. Now, be warned. Although I do consider myself a spiritual kind of dude, I imagine some might find shades of this story blasphemous. Indeed, when Sam first posted this story way back in the day in the Escape Artist Crick group, he said, Any way you slice it, this story's blasphemous. I guess I slice it in a slightly different way, but I digress. Author Sam Schreiber currently makes his home in Brooklyn, New York. He has an MFA in fiction from New York University, where he also has taught creative writing and currently serves as a writing consultant. His fiction has appeared in his forthcoming in Lambeth Quarterly, the Conflict of Interest podcast, and Cavalier Literary Couture, where this story was originally published. Your narrator this week is Tatiana Gomberg, a new voice here at PodCastle, but one I'm excited to hear back in our heavenly courts again soon. She asked us to plug the Conflict of Interest Theater Company at coitc.org. You can hear more of Conflict of Interest Theater Company's podcast at conflicttheater.podomatic.com. 
And if you'd like to contact Tatiana and hire her for voice work, you can email her at tatianagomberg at gmail.com. So break some bread, pound some wine, and enjoy the story. Corinthians by Sam Schreiber You promised yourself you would never call God at work. It was one of the ground rules you set for yourself back when all this started. But desperate times call for desperate measures, and it's not as if you haven't tried to call them at home. You've made some mistakes, that much is clear. You knocked back a bottle of Chianti and then texted him at 3 o'clock in the morning before passing out on your couch. You left him two voicemails the next day, one to apologize for the text and the other to apologize for the first voicemail. Your cheeks burn just thinking about it. You know better than anyone how busy God gets around this time of year. Even when the two of you were still together, he'd given you fair warning he could be tricky to get a hold of. By the time you finish dialing, you hope he's not there to answer. But God picks up the phone, upbeat as ever, though there is a note of surprise in his voice when he realizes it's you. I can call back later, you say. It's nothing that can't wait. It's just thinking of you is all. God assures you that now is as good a time as any to talk. He asks you how you've been, how your dissertation is coming together, and he tells you how crazy work has been. He sounds genuinely pleased to hear from you. No one listening would guess he'd moved the last of his things out of your apartment three weeks ago. You're about to suggest meeting for a drink when you hear voices in the background. God tells you something has come up, and maybe in the future you should try and call him on his cell. You met God at Boston University two years ago during a theological symposium. He was one of the keynote speakers, along with Leonardo Boff and Catherine Keller. Naturally, the auditorium was packed. You were standing in the back, hugging your attaché case to your chest, and would have stayed for the Q&A, but you had a panel on feminist deconstructionist theology. Later that evening, though, at a little pub a few blocks off campus, you spotted God, drinking by himself. Standing at the lectern, he hadn't struck you as such an imposing figure, but up close, God dwarfed everything. The tankard in his hand could have been a shot glass. You figured you might not have the chance again, and so you introduced yourself. God smiled at you as you sat down beside him, but you could tell he was trying to place your face. You saved him the trouble and let him know you'd never officially met. An easy, more sincere smile spread across his face when you told him you were in town for the conference. Of course God offered to buy you a drink. The crow's feet and laugh lines bunched around his eyes, as he told you he was sure he'd gone out of style with the latest crop of theologians. I wouldn't say out of style. You search for the words you wanted. It's just, you're hard to get out from under sometimes. <laughs> you're like the Beatles, you know? God chuckled at that, a basso rumbling that tickled the hairs on the back of your neck. He said he remembered buying the Sgt. Pepper LP like it was yesterday, which made sense when you think about it. Then he told you how he met Paul McCartney at a bar in Manchester in the 70s, how they'd both agreed over rounds that the rumors of their respected deaths had been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> it's not hard to see why so many people love him. Of course, long before you were born, God was considered something of a bad boy, <laughs> at least within the theological community. You've seen William Blake's painting with his shaggy hair whipping through the air like a rock star and his Byzantine muscles gleaming with cosmic power. Somewhere down the line, you think around the Italian Renaissance, God started to mellow out a little. 
These days, his hair is white and puffy like Christopher Lloyd's, but the, the look works for him. He's also put on a little weight over the last few centuries, but that just makes him feel safer somehow, like a big, tame animal. God did his best to keep pace with you as you discussed Kierkegaard and St. Augustine, sipping his Guinness like it was tea. You found out later, he can pack away the booze like nobody's business when he wants to. He's famous for it. Well, among other things. They say the only one who could ever keep up with him was Hemingway, and only when God had a good head start. As it was, you were only mildly buzzed when you suggested sharing a cab back to his hotel. God asked if you were sure, and you told him it wasn't a big deal as all of that. No pressure, no expectations, you just didn't feel like calling it a night quite yet. You were a little surprised to discover he was staying at the Sheraton. God is an exceptionally skillful and considerate lover, every time. He says it's a byproduct of omnipotence, but you secretly suspect it comes from years and years of practice. He knows what you want before you know it yourself. He's pleasingly hot to the touch, as though a thousand suns burned deep inside him. But it's the level of control he brings to the bedroom that really demolishes all your conceptions of what sex could be. A single whirl of his fingertip does the work of an entire finger, an entire hand. Just the brush of his lips against your skin swaddles you in a blanket of dopamine and serotonin. Never in your life have you encountered such gentled strength. He takes you on vacation to San Lucia during winter recess, Rio de Janeiro for Carnival and Atlantic City for your birthday, where you play blackjack and shoot craps for nearly an hour while God watches. You offer him the dice once, but he just smiles and shakes his head. Most of the time you spend with God, though, you spend at your own apartment on the Lower East Side. He calls ahead to tell you he's coming and usually picks up dinner on the way. He says he needs the time to unwind, and the truth is, you don't really mind so much. You often fall asleep on his chest while he thumbs through a fresh hardcover. God, you're not surprised to discover, is a voracious reader. Naomi Klein one night, Salman Rushdie the next. You even saw him reading Richard Dawkins once. He claimed he made him think. But all that was almost a year ago. Now God insists you've grown apart, that most relationships end this way, and that you deserve better. What he means is he deserves better. You wonder if it's another woman. You know God has other women, dozens at least, on any given week. It's something you accepted before you even kissed for the first time. It was an unspoken compromise, a small sacrifice in the grand scheme of things, but made in earnest. The truth is you almost hope God has fallen in love with someone else. The only other explanation is that he's just plain tired of you. Making a clean break is difficult for God. He says he has a hard time with goodbyes, which is probably why he packed his things while you were at work, teaching a class on Jack Derrida. You have never taken breakups well. You locked yourself in your apartment and cried for a week after your last boyfriend told you he thought things were getting too serious. You were 23. But this is something new. What you are feeling now are unprecedented heights of misery and desperation. You miss him so much, it makes you giddy. It feels like the best and truest thing you could possibly do. The skin on your face starts breaking out the way it did back when you suffered from what you thought was chronic insomnia. Bottles of white Zinfandel start disappearing from your refrigerator and then reappearing empty and in unlikely places around your apartment. You find yourself thinking about the dangerous glint God has in his eye in some of his more medieval portraits. 
You've never seen that gland, not in real life. You begin to wish you had. Domination, submission, and prostration. These are concepts that make an instinctual sort of sense to you. You wonder if God would have tied you up or cuffed you to the bedpost if you'd asked him. You didn't plan on finding God at McSorley's. But it wouldn't have made any difference. You would have gone just the same. God is with his friends, telling stories and gesturing expansively with his hands. You recognize a few of their faces. The imam from Brooklyn and best-selling author of Modern Islam in America, Kareem Hossein, <laughs> sips ginger ale from a straw. To his left are the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, in town for the St. Patrick Cathedral's rite of election. Benjamin Rosenstein, an owlish rabbinical student at the Yeshiva Chove Torah, sits off to the side, wrapped with attention. You met Rosenstein at a Columbia lecture series, and he insisted on introductions. Much to your irritation, God and Rosenstein had hit it off. You remember God, reading glasses dipped low on the bridge of his nose, flipping through the pages of an article Rosenstein had written for the Tikkun Olom newsletter, writing notes in the margins. It looks as though Rosenstein is sitting by himself now, so you give him a small wave with your fingers. He nods in your direction, but does not gesture for you to join him. You grow reckless after two stouts, though, and turn the chair next to him around, spreading your legs and wrapping your arms around the backboard. What's happening, Benjamin? Just hanging with the big guy? Your voice sounds clumsy and bitter, even in your own ears. We were talking about the Council of Nicaea, Rosenstein tells you. Trying to decide if it counts as the first real instance of postmodern textuality? <laughs> Death of the author, you know? <laughs> you say nothing as you sip your wine. I think it's fascinating, Benjamin continues. Virgin birth? Transubstantiation with Christianity? It all comes down to the editorial process. <laughs> he hasn't said or done anything wrong, of course, but even so, you want to reach out and break the little man's glasses. Slap the yarmulke off his head and watch him scramble on the floor to retrieve it. You're not quite sure what has gotten into you. Your boyfriend's son is Jewish, you remind yourself. And then remember to remind yourself, he's not your boyfriend anymore. Sensing trouble, God appears between the two of you and gives you a warm squeeze on the shoulder. He says he's glad you're here. Generally speaking, you ask. He tells you no without missing a beat. Here, tonight, with him. You wish he would make some small quip, a Casablanca reference, or... Better yet, some kind of inside joke only you and he would understand something, anything, to let you know he's been thinking of you a fraction as much as you've been thinking of him. We were talking about the Council of Nicaea, Rosenstein repeats. It's funny you shouldn't mention that, you say, because it just so happens I've been thinking about the Pauline Epistles. The what, he asks. Out of your league, Benjamin. You'd know, you say to God. Tell him, why don't you? There is, of course, a great deal of territory to cover with the epistles, God explains defensively. Too much to get into all in one night. He's feigning ignorance. He's always known exactly what's on your mind. We can start small. I was thinking of the early epistles. Not too early, though. I like to sleep in. So, not Romans. More like First Corinthians. God implores you with his eyes to stop. You were hoping for anger, maybe even some legitimately biblical wrath. But all you see on his face is that 
sad, weight-of-the-world look you've come to hate. Love is patient, you start. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. This sounds familiar, Rosenstein interjects. Shove it, you tell him. I'm not finished. God swallows a double sambuca as if he were washing down an aspirin. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. You rise to your feet for emphasis, nearly toppling your empty glass in the process. I don't know about anyone else, Imam Hussein says quietly, but your St. Paul has always frightened me a little. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. You jab your finger in the air now as you stroll around the table. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, well... Your voice cracks, and you let it trail off for a moment, holding up your hands as you take a step backwards. The imperfect disappears. It just fucking disappears, like it was never there in the first place, right? Like it didn't even matter. I think there's also something in there about putting away childish things. You hear a cavalier voice say over your shoulder. The Archangel Michael's lips are remarkably close to your ear, and his thick, honey-colored hair almost touches the base of your neck. He's shorter than he looks sitting down, you realize. Five-seven, maybe five-eight at the most. You hadn't noticed you were about to back into him. All eyes are on you. All except the ones you want. Those eyes are cast to the floor, either in guilt or in pity. You can't tell which. Yeah, you admit. That'd be Corinthians 13.11. Chapter and verse. He raises one eyebrow. I would have gotten there eventually. Probably. Without looking up, God asks if you and Michael have met. Before you realize what's happening, the archangel has steered you away from God, the table in Rosenstein. You hear the conversation picking up again as you walk with him. Michael asks if you smoke, and you ask, mystified, if he does. No, he says regretfully. Not anymore. Gabriel still does. He's more important to Muslims, though, and they don't seem to mind as much. But the Catholics, they're telling me it's bad for my image. <laughs> yeah, you say. Aren't you supposed to be like, a saint or something? I mean, on top of being an archangel. Sort of, he says. Then he adds... It depends on who you ask. Michael is a sinewy creature, all piano wire and cobblestone beneath his flawless pink skin. Mere inches from your face, his unblemished beauty is more than a little unsettling. You would swear he was cut from glass. He could be a model. He could front a band. He probably looks a little like God looked back when he kept in better shape, but you're nostalgic for his fleshy tree trunk of a body, his long, soft beard, and his wide silver irises gazing down on you. Michael's eyes are fierce black dots in pure white vitreous, almost cartoon-like. When he takes your waist in both hands and asks if you wouldn't mind turning over onto your belly, you happily accede to his request. Later, when the clock radio clicks four in the morning and you realize... Archangels probably don't sleep. You attempt small talk. 
There was a time, Michael tells you, when he officially commanded God's army. It had been an entirely ceremonial post, of course, mostly just showing up at the right place on the right day, no real responsibilities or decision-making of any kind. You know, according to Hossein back at the bar, me and Gabe aren't even supposed to have free will, he complains, his head cradled lazily in his hands. Isn't that a bitch? Do you ever let that hold you back? You ask, pulling a sheet over your body as you roll over to face him. You feel oddly curious on this point. I mean, does it ever come up? You want to zig when he says to zag? Do you have anything to eat? Michael cracks his neck as he turns to face you. I feel like pancakes. Do you feel like pancakes? You give Michael directions to the Sullivan's diner and are only a little startled when he unfurls a pair of expansive snowy wings. He gives you what could be a wink before exiting discreetly through your window. For a moment, it looks as though he's fallen to his death, but he swoops up into the air and melts away into the cityscape. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthan, you mutter to no one in particular. God avoids you now more than ever. He used to email you funny news stories and cartoons every so often, but now he doesn't even do that. He knows. Of course God knows. And he can't appreciate it very much. For all his philandering, he never did anything that would have come back to you. You curse Michael's big mouth. No free will, your ass! You curse yourself, too, feeling stupid and ashamed. Now you can't even call him. You wouldn't know what to say if he answered. You stumble like a zombie through your doctoral defense, but no one on your committee seems to notice. Friends and colleagues congratulate you, and you accept their congratulations with numb, measured irony. Your parents call you to tell you they're proud of you, and you dance around the subject of God. Of course, they had loved him even before they met him. They'd both been fans since before they were your age. You haven't had the heart to tell them that you and Gard are through, but they know things haven't been right between the two of you for a while now. You know they'll be disappointed when you finally break the news. You also know they'll tell you that maybe it's for the best, and maybe you and God are better off as friends, and maybe you yourself are better off with someone closer to your age, and you know you'll tell yourself that they are right. It's just you're in no mood to hear any of that. You toy with the idea of inviting God to your graduation ceremony, just to show him there aren't any hard feelings. No pressure, no expectations, just a friendly hug. Maybe a kiss on the cheek, that's all. You don't think he'd tell you no if you asked him. God has never been one to bandy around the N-word. You've come to understand that's part of his strategy. He never closes a door unless he absolutely has to. But he won't make any promises either. And when the day comes, you'll spend the entire time scanning the audience for him. If you had any kind of discipline or self-control, you would understand he wasn't coming. It isn't hard to pick him out of a crowd, and he would never have told you for sure that he wouldn't be there. But none of that'll matter. <laughs> you'll tell yourself you must have made a mistake, that your senses must be deceiving you, because if God loved you at all, he would be there for you now. Then you'll start thinking that God hates you that he's doing this on purpose because he wants you to suffer. And no one should ever have to think that sort of thing about their ex. It demolishes one's sense of self-worth like nothing else can. And do you say it? Dare you say it? You do. You will. God, at long last, 
is just not that into you. You meet Rosenstein again two years later, after you've left New York City for good and taken a tenure-track position at a small liberal arts college in the Midwest. He's shaved his beard and switched to narrow, more angular, metallic frames. He also moves with a kind of ease you're not sure he had before. Oh, it's been too long, he says. You see in his eyes that he's searching for your name. You save him the trouble and remind him how he knows you. You expect his eyes to go wide as he remembers, but his response is surprisingly nonchalant. I know, he says. I was just blanking on your name as all. You ask him how things have been and discover Rosenstein has not only left the city, but the rabbinical profession altogether. He's interviewing for a position in the department that shares a floor with your own. Academia asks not for your faith, Rosenstein pronounces grandly. Only your credentials. Don't get me wrong, he's still a big part of my life. Always will be. But at a somewhat more comfortable distance, you know what I mean? <laughs> it strikes you then, though it had not before, that Rosenstein is gay. Not just gay, in love. And you know all too well who with. The stammering, the averted eyes, the pigeon-toed piety whenever he was in the room. You don't think the two of them were ever together. You've been wrong about that sort of thing before. God's love, now that you think of it, couldn't possibly be so small as to confine itself to one gender. And you know firsthand he has a taste for scholars. Rosenstein bows slightly, or maybe just nods, and you let him pass. There's a moment, fleeting but tender, when you allow yourself to think about God and the way things were. Given the chance, you're forced to admit you would do it again. The wounds never fully heal. That's how you know it was real. But there's a world of difference between learning from a mistake and not. Between living the rest of your life and not. Between spending the finite number of days he gave you fixating over the finite number of days he gave you and not. You're on the right side of that divide and it feels good. Like losing track of your student loans and realizing you've almost paid them off. You have a little while before office hours and so take a stroll around the quad. A few of your students recognize you and wave. You smile politely in their direction. They aren't so very much younger than you, but there's something in their expressions, their voices, even the way they dress that feels wrong. Not wrong. Incorrect. Incomplete. As if they don't quite grasp how little the world cares about them, or more fundamentally, why that matters. <laughs> or maybe that's just your damage talking. And welcome back. Back when I was in college at a private Christian university, there was this movement with quite a few of the girls to stop dating guys and start dating Jesus. I always thought that was kind of insane. I mean, let's pretend dating Jesus is actually practical. How do you top JC? Not to mention, hello boys, what do you do? Unless you were gay, dating Jesus really isn't terribly appealing. Hell, even if you are gay, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's also not terribly appealing. Not to mention that if you were gay, that'd probably present a whole other mess of problems at this conservative university, even if you thought dating the Christ was a good idea. God, I don't know how I survive that college sometimes. 
Anyway, it's going to be very hard for me to keep a straight face the next time someone tells me they have a personal relationship with God. Unless, just curious, while listening to this story, did anyone else picture the dude as God? Because I could totally get why someone would want to date the dude. Alright, feedback this week's for Caitlin R. Kiernan's The Belated Burial, read by Amy Elk. The story of a vampire buried long after her death. Electric Paladin, also known as the King Under the Mountain, said, I like this one. True, nothing much happened, but it was a beautifully creepy, dirty, atmospheric little piece that reminded me of all the best parts of the entire Anne Rice canon, but short, and therefore without all the bad parts. In fact, I will expound further on how much I like this piece's length and pacing. It was exactly as short as it needed to be. Any longer and the non-action would have dragged, and any shorter and it would have been, as my younger brother once put it, into the decimal. He was trying to say infinitesimal. This one gave me the shivers in all the right and wrong places. Wonderful. Marie Brennan didn't agree, but said, Beautifully written, and it managed to hold tension for me because I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop about this whole burial tradition. But then, it didn't. I enjoyed it right up until the end when this really interesting thing appears, and then gets dropped without ceremony. I was very disappointed by that, and disappointed that the story ended with Briley still sitting there, waiting, and no sense of change on her part or realization on mine. If there was supposed to be something there, it was too understated for me to pick up on. Well, thanks to everyone who took the time to comment. We do appreciate it. What do you think of our episode this week? Drop by our forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Yeah, we have heard that pride's a sin, but nevertheless, we're proud in all our sinful glory to pay our authors and continue to bring free fantasy fiction to you week after week. We can't do this without your help, people, so if you can donate something, anything, we'd greatly appreciate it. And so do our authors. And hey... It is approaching the holidays. Are you still trying to figure out what to give that special rabbi, priest, preacher, or imam in your life? Why not a Podcastle t-shirt or a set of archive discs? Maybe you could suggest they play this episode during Bible study or morning worship. You see, we've got some new blood at poddisc.com. Jonathan and Allison Chaffin are slaving away in the poddisc dungeons churning out the finest in clothing and archive discs so you can become the heretic you've always dreamed of being. So check out poddisc.com for all your holiday needs. And now, the benediction. Thank you for letting all of us at Podcastle share another story with you. We'll be back next time when Greg Van Eekout and Michael J. Jasper drop by to show us who the real California king is. Until then, have fun getting touched by an angel, and we'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. J. Oswald Saunders said, We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. True, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy. But when it comes to the point, 
we are not prepared to pay the price involved.